Let's take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I think the following statement is accurate. That's a way to introduce a statement, right? I think the following statement is accurate. And it's this, the more complicated an item, organization, or situation, the more important every piece becomes. I think think that's right. That, That the more complicated something is, then it's even more pressing that all of the pieces involved in that something work efficiently and effectively. For example, take, take a high-end, expensive timepiece, like a wristwatch, pocket watch, a clock. I, I, mean, I mean the kind that, that, are, that, that are handmade. Every part, every piece, personally crafted by the watchmaker. In fact, I, I found, and some of you may already know this, but I, I found that the, the more pieces involved then the greater the artistry of the watchmaker, which then comes with a few more zeros and dollar signs, right? What's fascinating, when you look at all the pieces of a watch, if you've ever seen one apart or ever seen a clock apart, I mean, there's a lot of very little pieces. Even the smallest piece, the most delicate piece, has got to work properly. If one piece doesn't work, and the whole thing doesn't work. We actually have a phrase that we use that draws from this idea. Whenever we have a plan and that plan comes off perfectly the way we intended it to, which probably rarely happens, but whenever that happens, what do we say? It went like clockwork. Everything fit. All the pieces meshed. Every part doing its job. I think this is an apt illustration for the church. I mean, we can all agree the church can be a complicated thing, right? I mean, this this can be a complicated organization, and I use that term not in its corporate sense, just saying church, church has got a lot of funny parts to it. This can be a challenging thing. There are a lot of pieces. There are a lot of parts. There are necessary Parts that have to do their job. And, and when, when those parts don't do their job, or at least not if they don't do them the way they're supposed to, well, we have a word for that. It's called a dysfunctional church. Now, there's no such thing as a perfect church. And God in His goodness and His grace uses dysfunctional churches because every church has got some in it. But what, we, what is, I, th- I think, an important picture to understand about the life of the church and what I think Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's kind of laying out for the folks in Corinth this, this picture of church life, this picture of every member, every part of the church doing his or her part, fulfilling his or her role, using his or her ministry skills, God-given gifts, And that if all of these parts then are viewed properly, are used properly, are appreciated properly, all these parts come together and a church can work like clockwork. Church works at its most efficient level. 
when each of the members, each of the parts of the church are functioning as God has designed them. Now, this is what is not happening in Corinth. They're not functioning this way. And in particular, Paul's really big concern here, you might even argue it's as big a concern as anything he's talked to to this point because he gives as much space to this subject as any other topic in all of these 16 chapters. Paul's real concern is the church seems to have a really dysfunctional, immature, prideful, selfish view of spiritual gifts. The very thing that God has given to the church so that the church can be the church, it's the very thing they seem to really be messing up. Because you've got some that have really showy, flashy gifts, and you have others looking at that thinking, wow, I wish I had the flashy, showy gifts. And the folks with the flashy, showy gifts are saying, yeah, you'd be a lot more spiritual if you were like me. So this was creating tension, pride. It was also creating you know, this, this sense of self-pity then among others. We're saying, I'm, I must not be important because I don't have what they have. So all these chapters, these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, are designed to correct this, this problem in Corinth, to give them a proper understanding of, of what it means to function as the church in relation to their spiritual gifts. Now, we've been in verses 4 through 11 for a while, and we'll finish this up tonight and then maybe jump into the next part of Paul's argument here. And just to keep in mind, you know, what Paul has been doing overall is, is kind of he's, he's laying out for us what are what are five features uh, of the gifts and, and and we've been talking about the nature of the gifts in verses four through eleven he's he's really giving us a theological foundation for them and, and to understand the gifts to understand where they came from what their purpose is uh, I think Paul's argument flows along the lines of four words we've looked at two of them diversity. And unity, you know, Paul has already made the point, verse 4, diversity of gifts, but the same spirit, differences of ministries, same Lord, verse 6, diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. And so this is kind of the flavor of the entire three chapters. These themes of diversity and unity, unity, diversity, we, we, are, we are one, yet we are many. We, we each have our role to fulfill, but it's all for one purpose. And that is for the, the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, His church, and God's glory. And so, so Paul has, has laid out for the church right at the beginning. that there's, there's no such thing as somebody being more spiritual than somebody else because of the spiritual gifts they have. That, that has no bearing on somebody's spiritual qualities. Because you don't have anything to do with your gift. I don't have anything to do with it. It's not that I've got my gift because uh, God thinks I'm just a little bit better than everybody else. It's not that you've got get your gift because God thinks you're better than the other people sitting around you. In other words, this is just this is God's deciding to do what He wants to do in His body. And so every gift matters, every individual matters. So Paul's really driving home this point. Now, number three, there's a third word, and this gets us to new stuff tonight. And that's the word Trinity. The word Trinity even bringing up the word Trinity, that's tricky. It's a tricky doctrine, this idea of three in one, one God, three persons. Unbelievers love to pick on us for this. 
there are even some within the so-called evangelical world. I, I say so-called because I think if you deny the Trinity, you deny the gospel. And I want you to hear that very carefully. If somebody says they don't believe in the Trinity, that means they don't believe in the gospel. They, you can't believe in the gospel and deny the Trinity at the same time. It has been condemned as a heresy since the beginning of the church. All right? So you've, you've, you've got to believe in these things, but, but it is difficult, right? It's a profound mystery. How, how can God be three and yet one? And I know that elicits all kinds of analogies you've heard in the past, right? Like a room has length, width, and height. And I understand the impulse to want to use these analogies. But in a lot of ways, they're not helpful. Because a room is not equally at length, width, and height all at the same time. Right? Some people will talk about an egg. It's got a shell, it's got a white, it's got a yolk. But it's not also at the same time all shell, all white, all yolk. Some people will use water. Right? Solid, it's, it, can be, it can be ice, it can be steam, it can be liquid, right? But it's all H2O, but not all at the same time. It's not all steam, all ice, and all liquid all at the same time. So this is a divine mystery here, but what's interesting, when you read through the New Testament enough, you find consistently the Trinity being used as the theological grounding for all kinds of doctrines. Read Ephesians chapter 1 and you'll find Paul doing the same thing. The theological grounding of the gospel itself is God as elector, Christ as redeemer, and the spirit as the sealer. He's going to do the same thing here with spiritual gifts. Paul is going to draw from the language of the Trinity almost as an analogy of types to say, here's how the Trinity works, and so this is a part of how the spiritual gifts work. Again, notice the presence of the Trinity here. We've pointed this out before, but let's just look at it again. Verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And the word Lord there is almost always a reference to Jesus. It's almost always a reference to Jesus. Verse 6, and there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. Now, do you think Paul just did this by coincidence? Does Paul strike you as a guy who does random stuff? Or does Paul strike you as a guy who would be difficult to talk to because he's going to parse every single word you say? That one, all right? That, yes, Paul is going to parse. He's going to nitpick. He's going to pull apart every single word you say. It's how he was trained. This is not coincidence. Paul's doing this on purpose drawing our attention to the, to the triune, the triunity of the Godhead. And this is all deep and profound and mysterious stuff. And so what he's saying here, when it comes to spiritual gifts, the very foundation of the gifts is the Trinity itself. That, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, though they are all three persons and distinct, yet they are all part of all of the work of God. All of the persons of the Trinity are all part of the work of all the persons of the Trinity. You got that? Perfectly understand, right? But this, this is the doctrine of the Trinity. Again, they, they, each, they each do their thing. There is a role described. So the Father has a work, the Son has a work, the Spirit has a work. And interestingly enough, Paul's then going to go on to say in verse 7, 
Now he's going to talk exclusively about the Spirit. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Verse 8, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. Spirit's mentioned again in verse 9. Then you get to the end of this text, verse 11, but one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So, to Paul does something really interesting. He draws our attention to this grand unity in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all involved in the giving of the gifts, the giving of the ministries, and the giving of the power in order to engage the ministries with the gifts. And yet at the same time, the Spirit seems to have a unique role in all of this. He seems to be the one who is energizing it all. It's the Spirit that is the person of the Trinity that is, that is doling out these gifts. It's, it's Him who's empowering these gifts. It's, it's, it's really a, a profound argument. Now, again, you might say, all right, Pastor, why, why does this matter so much? Because keep in mind, who's He talking to? He's talking to folks in Corinth who think they're something because they have a big flashy gift. And then he's talking to others in Corinth who think they're nothing because they don't have the big flashy gift. And Paul is grounding his argument for the giving of the gifts in the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all work in unity, yet they work selflessly. Jesus isn't saying to the Father, come on, why does the Spirit get to do all that gift stuff? I want to do some of that gift stuff. Can I do some of that stuff too? Can you imagine how strange that would be? Can you imagine how strange it would be for the Father to say, why, why should the Spirit get all the credit for that? Or for the Father to say, you know, there's a lot of talk about Jesus around Easter. Why don't I get some of that news? Why don't I get some of the headlines? Paul's point here is to show that the very thing he's talking about is exemplified in the Trinity itself. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all God worthy of devotion and worship and and my service all work selflessly together. Now, understand what I've said doesn't, doesn't give you the ability to explain to an atheist how the Trinity works. But let me get you off the hook here. Lost people cannot comprehend the Trinity. You don't have to explain to an atheist the Trinity. You don't have to defend the Trinity. If God intended for you to defend the Trinity, do you know how big the Bible would have been? Right? I need a lot more pages than what He's given to me. My responsibility has never been to defend God. Do you think God needs me to defend Him? No, God's only given me one command, and that's to preach the gospel. He's given you the same one, by the way. Right? I don't have to convince an atheist of anything. The Spirit does that. I just have to be faithful to the truth. What the Spirit work is, the Spirit is going to work. And so, so Paul lays out this argument about the gifts, the theology of the gifts. Here's what they are, here's how we get them, and what undergirds them. This beautiful display of the Trinity at work. Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect unity, yet also expressing a diversity of purpose and role and action. Yet all doing all the things all the time. So let me suggest to you, this, this is a reflection of what the church should be like. We all have our parts to play, yet we all participate in the one thing called the church. 
So we all rise and fall on the entirety of this church. In fact, I can illustrate this. On the influence this can have on church life. Have, have you ever had a situation where, where maybe you were talking to somebody, they, they went to a particular church that had a particularly bad reputation? What do you think about the individual who goes to the church with the bad reputation? Does it reflect on the individual member? Well, certainly it does. It absolutely does. The, 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 the work of, of, the, of the church, of those of us in the church, even individually, can have an impact then on the picture of the whole. And, and so Paul is really trying to reinforce how important it is that, that we, we understand these, this unity, diversity, and how the Trinity is really an illustration of it. Let me give you one more, number four here, and that is sovereignty. Sovereignty. So Paul is going to wrap up this part, this, this opening theological foundation, by making it clear once again, he's already done this, uh, really in verse 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Even in verse 6, there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. In, in other words, the gifts come to us as a result you got to get this. As the result of nothing more than God's own choice. God's own choice. God's sovereign decision. And this is really punctuated in verse 11. But one in the same, after he's gone through all these different gifts, and we've already walked our way through that a couple of weeks ago, but one in the same spirit works all these things. And notice this next word distributing to each one individually as he wills. As he wills. Here's how gifts don't work. You don't get to look at a list of them and say, you know what, I, I think I'd, I'd like a little bit of leadership with some mercy and maybe throw in a bit of administration, right? Like it's McDonald's, and you're, I'd like the number one, except supersize the wisdom for me, all right? You know, you don't get to pick. It's not a menu. God decides what you get. You don't. It's as if you went to a restaurant, and when you, when you get to your table, they bring a plate of food out. What is this? Well, it's my restaurant, so I'm sovereign over it. So if you want to eat, this is what you eat. This, this is how God operates in church. My, my, my gift was not my decision. Your gift is not your decision. Now, you can decide to obey or not, right? In other words, you can, you, you, can, you can submit to what God has done in your life and work in accordance with the work of the gospel in your life and the spirit in your life or not. But Paul's really making it clear. These folks who have whatever gift, it's not because God looked at them and thought, wow. There's something special. God, God didn't look at John MacArthur and think, man, that guy is something special. So I'm going to really let him have the gift of preaching and teaching. You understand God's never, and I hope you understand the, the spirit in which I say this. It may come off wrong, I don't know. God's never been impressed with us. 
God always loves us, all right? God absolutely loves us. But God's never been impressed to say, whoo, wow, yeah, that's right. That guy's super spiritual, so I'm going to give him super spiritual spiritual gifts. God in his sovereignty has said, give to each one as I will. Because he is the watchmaker, right? He's the one putting the pieces together. And this is also a shot at the people who are saying, who may have the gift of, of service or the gift of helps and who are thinking, well, I, I never get any credit. No one, ever, no one ever points me out. Preacher up there gets all the credit. I can't believe I don't get any of the credit. In other words, those folks who are saying, so my, I don't care about my gift. I want that gift. Paul's words are directed to them as well. Say, look, this is not your deal here. You don't get to decide. God in his sovereignty has done this. He decides who gets what gift. So this, this is, again, this is the theological grounding of this to understand the gifts, the diversity of them, the unity of them. They come through the triune work of God and, and He is sovereign over it all. All right, let's go on to the next Roman numeral there because now Paul's going to move on in in his argument here, as he's going to continue to lay out for this church how they should understand the gifts, now he's going to really emphasize the value of the gifts, the value of the spiritual gifts. So Paul does something in verses 12 through 31 that, that is familiar to us all. My guess is there's no other metaphor, analogy, symbol, simile, whatever term you may want to use, as recognizable as what Paul does in this text. Because it's here that Paul is going to compare the work of the church in regard to spiritual gifts with the human body. And it's really an apt illustration. I mean, it really is. And this is what he's doing. He's illustrating really what he's just said. He's going to use how the body works. The body works in its... And he's going to continue to stress all of those points we just mentioned. Diversity, unity, trinity, sovereignty. These qualities will come out again and again all the way throughout chapter 14. And so, so Paul is going to now make sure the church understands exactly how these things work, the value of the spiritual gifts, by using the human body as an illustration. And so this is going to take our time... Obviously, we'll, we'll get to one point tonight of this second section, and uh, then we'll cut it off and we'll move on then ne- next Wednesday. So, Paul, I, I, think, I think as you look at what Paul does here in verses 12 through 31, just, just how, do the, how does this analogy help us understand the, the, the value of spiritual gifts, maybe my own particular role with my spiritual gift in the church? So we're going to look at five assertions, five assertions that I think we find in the text that help us understand the value. Number one, and this, I'm going to tell you right now, the outline, the outline this, for this section, I mean, it's, this could go on Oprah, all right? I could go, I could, I could, I could go on Dr. Phil with this one, all right? Uh, I, this, this one could get me on The View. I mean, it really is going to sound really positive and encouraging and uplifting, all right? This is like the K-Love of sermons right here. It's going it, to, you're going to think, what's happened to Pastor Scott? He's still dealing with that knock on the head from a month ago, all right? 
But, but oddly enough, Paul really does use encouraging language here to some degree. He's also trying to convict people of, of their wrongheadedness. Uh, but he's really going to build this argument to show how significant we all are. And he begins by saying, in essence, we do matter. Every single one of us matters. Now, we matter because God's made us matter, all right? But we do. All of us have a role. There is a significance for us. We, as believers who are a part of this church, we matter. Notice what he says beginning in verse 12, as he kind of lays out uh, the basics of this analogy. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Analogy's pretty straightforward there. You can tell exactly what he's doing. And when he says, for the, the body is one and yet has many members, the word members there probably means any part of the human body. Because we know from later parts, I mean, when we hear the word maybe members, or you may have a translation that uses the word parts, you know, we, we might tend to think of, because he's going to talk about an eye and an ear, he's going to talk about a hand and a foot, but really he has in mind, I think, everything. Heart, lungs, brain, right? all, all, all of it. And really what he's doing here is he's trying to, to illustrate the, the profound unity in such a complex reality. Because, because the human body really is a profound complexity, is it not? I mean, how many, how many things are you doing right now that you have no conscious awareness of? Are you consciously making your heart beat? Are you consciously making your heart pump blood through the veins? Are you consciously making your, your lungs work so that you breathe? I mean, your body's engaged in a thousand things right now. I mean, you may be thinking of it now because I just said it, right? But I mean, before now, you weren't thinking anything of it. That these things just happen. All of the parts work pretty well, don't they? All right, I don't know if anybody, has, any of us would say, man, I work like clockwork, all right? I don't know. My, my clock, the, the clock is slow sometimes. All right, the time's wrong. And, uh, you know, so sometimes, the, you know, it needs to be wound again. All right, but... What, what if one of our parts was not working properly? Well, we wouldn't be here, right? We'd either be at home or a hospital. So, so Paul, Paul is using this analogy, and it's an apt one. It translates straight from first century Corinth right to today. You've got this one body, but there are many members. But all of the members are part of that one body. In other words, all these things are connected, and they are interconnected. They don't work independently of one another. And if they try to work independently of one another, we have a word for that. Bad health, right? When they try, when, when something happens, like, like when a cell tries to work independently of the rest, I think you kind of call that cancer, right? So when, when things try and work independently, when your heart doesn't want to beat the way it's supposed to beat, call that a heart attack. In other words, there, when the body works independently, parts independently of the rest, and we call that bad health. 
So all of these things, are it's not just that we are random parts stuck together. They're interconnected. They work with one another. They require all these other parts. And so Paul then says, just as this is the case, so also is Christ. Now think about how he describes that for a moment. When he says, so also is Christ, he doesn't literally mean the person Jesus. This is shorthand for the church. He is directly identifying the church with Christ himself. So also is Christ. And what he means by that, so also is the body of Christ, are the people who have been redeemed. He's talking about the church here. So also is the church. We're one, interconnected. We require one another. For this thing to work, it's not like we're just random parts who happen to show up at the same time and do our own thing independently. By the way, some churches do that. Some churches do try and have different parts that kind of do their own things independently. That leads to dysfunction in the church. No, no, we're interconnected. It's not just we're connected, we're interconnected with one another. And so this is the nature of the church. And he goes on to explain it in verse 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So now, now Paul's really emphasizing the nature of our unity here. And, and he does so in a really interesting way. So he's, he's talking fundamentally about the work of salvation. So the reason we are all one body, the reason why we are this, this diverse, unified body of believers in Christ is because of the work of the Spirit, God giving God the Father, giving the Spirit the role of this, of knitting the church, the people, together. Now, we do need to deal with an issue here when it says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. We'll probably mention this some more times as we go throughout this section of 1 Corinthians, but I do want to make this plain. Because if you have any interactions with charismatic Pentecostal uh, individuals or their, and or their, their theology, that there's, there's a, a false idea they propagate. And that is this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a secondary event to the work of salvation. They'll call it the second blessing sometimes. And what, the, the way it will be described is you've got, you've got salvation in Christ and then you need to have this, this other experience where you are baptized in the Spirit. And for a lot of folks, you know how you know you're baptized in the Spirit? Speak in tongues. Well, we've dealt with that one, right? Okay, But this, this is the argument. So you know that then now you've got the Spirit. But notice what Paul says here. Two words. And again, to, to properly understand theology, just go back to the text. For by one Spirit we were... What's that next word? All. All. And then what's the next word after that? Baptized. That's in the past tense, right? So Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, by the Spirit of God, every single one of, not you, but of us, every single one of us have already been baptized into Christ. I know that sounds like odd language, but really what he's getting at here is that the work of the Spirit was the energizing work that unites us to Christ. And so understand, you have, listen to me church, don't let anybody ever say anything different, you have 
all of the Holy Spirit. And you've always had all of the Holy Spirit from the moment you got saved. You don't need any more Holy Spirit. You have all of Him. Now, does that mean that you live in the power of the Spirit all the time? Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) No, that is the problem, right? But that's not a problem with my access to the Spirit. Don't, don't, Don't let those guys on TV tell you. Those guys who are just trying to get your money, all right? Don't let them tell you that they've got more anointing from the Spirit. Because that's not a thing. That's not a New Testament thing, all right? To have more anointing of the Holy Spirit, that is not a New Testament thing. I have all the Holy Spirit. You have all the Holy Spirit. I don't have more access to the Spirit than you do. You don't have any more than I do. John MacArthur doesn't have any more. Billy Graham doesn't have any more. We all have exactly the same amount. Just like we all have exactly the same amount of Christ. This is what salvation has done. The gospel has united me perfectly with Christ. And so that's why then Paul says in that second part, we've all been made to drink into one spirit. So we're all fully immersed in Christ, and the spirit fully is in all of us. We don't need a second blessing. We don't need to pray for some kind of Holy Ghost goosebumps in, in order to, to, to get to that next level. By the way, if that were what Paul was trying to say here, it would defeat everything else that he's been saying. In other words, if there really was this distinction between those folks who have all of the Holy Spirit and those folks who don't quite yet have all the Holy Spirit, who do you want leading the church? I mean, if that were possible, who do you want teaching you? Who who do you want ministering to you? Who should be going to hospitals? Who should be helping out? Who should be in the nursery? Do you want somebody with less spirit or more spirit? I want somebody with more spirit, right? This would defeat the whole purpose. There would be two classes of Christians. Spiritual, and not yet spiritual. This doesn't exist. This distinction doesn't exist biblically. Now again, that doesn't mean that some believers don't live more faithfully than others. What this means is, it's not the, it's, it's not the fault of the gospel. I don't need God to do something else. It's not like I can just sit back and say, well, you know what, I, I sure would love to be more faithful than I am. But golly, I just don't have enough spirit, all right? God just hasn't given it to me yet, so another pint of Ben and Jerry's and let's binge on another TV show, all right? Because I don't, I mean, really, I, I can't do anything until the spirit shows up and I'm waiting on him, all right? I'm ready whenever he comes. So we've, this, this is what has happened. We've all been given this spirit it's, and, it's, and it's connected us to Christ and it's connected us to one another. So Paul's really combating this idea that some people would be more important than others. They're not. We all matter. We all matter. And Paul's going to make this explicit. He's going to really use some interesting language uh, in the rest of this. In fact, if you've never really studied this metaphor before, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, Go home, study it, and, and look at exactly how Paul is going to use the language here. to to talk about the nature of the body of Christ and how we work in accordance with our spiritual gifts uh, to, again, emphasize the fact that every individual matters, we matter, and that this is is how we should understand ourselves and and the work of the gifts among us. All right, so hold on to this outline. Uh, We'll keep going then in this text next Wednesday night and uh, continue to see uh, how the body tells us something.
about life in the church. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you again for gathering us tonight. Grateful for this opportunity to be in your word and be with God's people. God, we just ask you, you would continue to give us understanding of, of who we are in Christ, of the access we have to your spirit and to understand then the gifts that have been given to us, the ministries, and that, that in you is, is the, the power and ability to fulfill those. And, and may we recognize our role and may we appreciate the role of others. And may we seek then to not only be a part uh, in accordance with, with what we do, but, but to support everyone else in the part that they play. Thank you for knitting us together as your church. And I pray, Lord, we continue to be submissive to that process that we might be a church that would bring you great glory. Thank you for these who've come. So grateful for the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray, God, that as we go from here, we would know your hand upon us, giving us wisdom and grace for the days to come, that we'd live in faith and obedience to you, and that you'd gather your people back together again, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.